Tonight, we have an encore presentation of a classic interview with Lawrence Spencer. Next week, Lawrence returns with a new interview and new material. Enjoy. This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of the best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making it all possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to all segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. And don't forget to visit the Veritas store for MMS, USB drives with all our seasons, and more. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower, there's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Tonight, I will ask you to be skeptical, but have an open mind. Our special guest is Lawrence R. Spencer, editor of the book Alien Interview. The content of this book on tonight's discussion comes allegedly from official top-secret U.S. Army Air Force interview transcripts and personal notes received from the late Matilda O'Donnell McElroy. The material we'll discuss is based on a series of interviews she conducted with an extraterrestrial being as part of her official duty as a nurse in the U.S. Army Air Force. The extraterrestrial she interviewed identified itself as an officer pilot 
an engineer of the Domain Expeditionary Force, a race of beings who have been using the asteroid belt in our solar system as an intergalactic base of operations for the past 10,000 years. Her dying request was that the transcripts finally be released to the world. In a letter received with the transcripts, Mrs. McElroy says, quote, Mankind needs to know the answers to questions which are contained in these documents. Who are we? Where did we come from? What is our purpose on Earth? If there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, why have they not contacted us? It is vital that people understand the devastating consequences to our physical and spiritual survival if we fail to take effective action to undo the long-standing and pervasive effects of alien intervention on Earth. Unquote. For this and much more, Lawrence R. Spencer, right now on Veritas. Lawrence R. Spencer is the author of eight books. His books explore facts and fantasies of universes, both physical and spiritual, including Western history, art, mythology, personal and spiritual immortality, logic, and science fiction. Mr. Spencer is also the editor of the book Alien Interview, including transcripts, letters, and personal notes provided by the late Army Air Force nurse Matilda McElroy concerning the Roswell UFO crash in 1947. Spencer is a business consultant and multimedia producer. The author of Alien Interview is the Roswell U.S. Army Air Force nurse Matilda O'Donnell McElroy. Lawrence R. Spencer organized and edited the material received from her into a publishable format and added footnotes for clarification and edification of the letters, notes, and military interview transcripts she mailed to him shortly before her death. And directly from Lincoln, Northern California, I would like to welcome Lawrence R. Spencer to Veritas. Hello, Mr. Spencer, and welcome. How are you? I'm good, Mel. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. May I call you Lawrence? That's my name. Thank you. Well, a few weeks ago, a few of our, my listeners, and for a long time now, probably a few years, I've been looking at, at the book and, and, and people emailing me asking, you know, when are you going to interview uh, Mr. Spencer? And I'm glad that we have you here. This is a very very fascinating story, but right from the beginning. And I really appreciate the fact that you're very upfront in stating that you never met the author, Matilda O'Donnell McElroy, and the reader should come to their own conclusion. Because this is one of those stories that we cannot confirm. Can you please express that to the audience just to make sure we set the stage? Yeah. Um, the the origin of the material from as far as uh, my contact with it, began in, uh, when I was researching a book that I wrote, the first book that I wrote called The Oz Factors. Uh, and the editor of that book, Carol South, who has since passed uh, from breast cancer, uh, she was very much into uh, the paranormal and all, all things UFO, and she would stay up half the night listening to Art Bell and all of that sort of thing. Uh, so that field of study was really her forte, and I had no real familiar with, familiarity with it, um, except through her. But uh, as I recall, she was the one who came across, in, during our researches, uh, a phone number for someone who 
she was told might know something about the Roswell incident. Well, the book, our book wasn't anything about the Roswell incident specifically, but, um, you know, just out of curiosity, kind of on a lark, I called the phone number and Slade answers, and it was Matilda McElroy. This was in 1998, um, which is now, what, 16 years ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I told her, you know, that we were told that maybe she knew something about what had occurred at Roswell in 1947. And she said, well, I can't I have no information for you about that, um, except that, you know, she was a nurse in the Army Air Force. I called this this lady on the phone in 1998. I spoke to her for maybe 15 or 20 minutes, and I told her that you know we were researching this book and described the general idea of the book to her and, and so forth. So that was about all there was to that, and I completely forgot about it. Uh, she said she was interested in reading the book when it was done, so I mailed her a copy of the book. At that time, she was living uh, near an Air Force base. Uh, in Montana, it was called the, uh, I forget the name of the Air Force Base, or the Glasgow Air Force Base, that's what it was, um, where she had been placed, as I learned later, in uh, under government protection, so to speak, uh, at this Air Force Base where she had lived um, at the time that I, that I called. Almost like witness protection. Yeah, sort of like a reverse version of <laughs> The, the the government is protecting her from the rest of the world because right. of what she knows. Um, so anyway, long story short, uh, I did send her the book. And as I said, I forgot all about it. And then 10 years later, in, 1990, in 2007, I received this, this big envelope full of uh, the transcripts from this interview, uh, a bunch of handwritten personal notes from her and some typewritten personal notes from her uh, describing this interview that occurred at the Roswell uh, Air Force Base in 1947 with the surviving pilot of the UFO that crashed there at that time. Uh, So as you can well imagine, I was initially, I was very skeptical to say the least but the fact that I had spoken to her briefly on the phone uh, led me to at least take a look at the material the actual transcript documents themselves seem to look authentic I mean I'm no I'm certainly no expert on documents but they certainly look like they could have been original documents they were they were typed as far as I could tell on uh, the original paper. The paper seemed to be very old. It was folded. Uh, the handwritten notes were obviously handwritten, so on and so forth. So anyway, uh, I decided to, well, I'll see if I can verify whether any of this is authentic. So uh, I undertook a, a process of, took me, I don't know, six or seven months to go through and read everything and try to put it in some kind of sequential fashion, uh, her notes integrated into the transcripts. Um, and so I, I added footnotes to every everything in the documents that I could find that could be substantiated through internet research, which is all I had available to me, really. And most of which I was just using on Wikipedia, you know, just commonly accessible information 
that anyone can uh, do the research on because I'm no research expert. I'm certainly no expert in UFOs or Roswell or anything like that. So anyway, I did my due diligence on that. Got it all put together. All the while, um, I was paranoid about having received these, what I was, looked to me like top secrets, stolen government documents. And, uh, you know, I'm no hero. Uh, I'm a coward. Oops. <laughs> hmm. uh, I don't have one, have any government agent come to my door and said, you're in possession of secret documents. You're under arrest. We're going to shoot you in the head and da da whatever. Uh, I don't have anything to do with that. So, uh, anyway, in her letter to me, uh, two of the letters, there were two letters included, the last letter, she asked me, based on having read my book, apparently she felt that uh, I could be trusted to uh, publish the documents exactly as I had received them, which I did proceed to do. Because um, after you've read the material, it's it's quite a changes your reality about things quite substantially. At least it did for me. I was really quite shaken by the whole thing, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, as many people are who have reported me to the, to me over the last three and a half years since it was published. But nonetheless, uh, I felt that the information, uh, should be known. Uh, I think it's important that the information be known. But on the other hand, everybody has to do their own due diligence, the same as I did. I think it's, uh, I'm not the author of the material. It's not my material. It's not my job to defend it or anything like that. I just thought, okay, this lady is, wants me to publish it. I know how to do this, so I went ahead and did it. And then I destroyed all the original documents. Uh, and I, write, I wrote in my disclaimer at the beginning of the book exactly my reasons for doing so, uh, mainly because, as I say, I, I didn't want to have been hounded the rest of my life or chased around by government agents or reporters or anybody else. I'm a private person. I don't have anything to do with Roswell or UFOs. I've never seen a UFO. I've never been abducted in you know, any of that stuff. Uh, I, I could care less. Um, I'm pretty sure, Lawrence, that uh, because of this, and, and I've spoken to other people who have uh, have had their, for example, some, some of them have taken footage or uh, photographs or video, and the original negatives have been confiscated and they're allowed to continue publishing their information because there's plausible deniability because they cannot prove that they have the negatives. In this case, because you destroy the quote-unquote evidence, they can't come to you and say, in other words, there's plausible deniability self-inflicted in a way to protect yourself. Is that why you did it? Absolutely. I mean, if a, if a government agent showed up at my door today saying, you know, we're, you're under arrest because you you published these stolen documents, I would say, hey, it's a science fiction story. I made the whole thing up. Right. And it's up to you to prove otherwise. And I don't think anybody could prove otherwise. Uh, and thousands of people have tried to. So I could care less, you know, one way or the other. Of it's, course. I published it. Everybody does what they're going to do with it and whatever. At the same time. Some people, and I'm just playing devil's advocate from the beginning, some people may say, well, he's also a science fiction writer. Could it be that because you have 
you know, your intellectual and, and, and prowess as a writer that some people may say, you know, I wonder if he just came up with the, with the story or he injected some of his science fiction stories into this. Can you confirm or deny this from the beginning? Well, <laughs> first of all, uh, I'm flattered by the, the accusation that I might have been, I might be creative enough or a genius enough as a writer to have written this material uh, because, frankly, it's beyond my... I mean, when I first read it, I thought, wow, this is the most wild and crazy stuff uh, imaginable. This is, this is Steven Spielberg and George Lucas put together maybe 10 times, <laughs> really. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. So, you know, I'm actually, I laugh every time anybody says, oh, you must have written this yourself. And yeah, okay, well, whatever. Obviously, you haven't written the other things that I've written. Read exactly. the other things that I've written. But moreover, um, generally, people who make that suggestion um, find the whole thing very, very incredible, which I absolutely, completely understand. I found the whole thing very, very incredible myself, and I still do uh, to this day, to some greater or lesser degree, except that I've had four years to live with the material and many, many, many other researchers, authorities, people who are really, truly experts on the subject have done their due diligence and investigation and reported to me that uh, that the material is very highly factual, which, you know, I would... anyway, so I have to take the word for it because as I say, no, I'm no expert. So uh, you, you spoke to, to Matilda, you spoke to Matilda on the phone multiple times? No, 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 just that one time. That one time only. Yeah, yeah. I can't even verify that Matilda was a real person. I, mean, I can't even verify that that's her actual name. In fact, my conclusion is that that's not her name. That's a name that she was given or assumed herself to hide her identity and her location of course. and so forth, you know, which is, I guess, fairly common practice for somebody who's um, been you know, under government uh, surveillance or witness or whatever. You know, they don't reveal their identity to the world. For obvious reasons, of and course. More, moreover, in the you know in the documents or in the letters, she says, you know, you know, I'm asking you to publish this, but I don't want you to risk your life to do it. You know, because lots of people have been killed over the years, uh, and I've heard many, many, many stories subsequently over the years. I've been told by many people who were either witnesses or mostly secondhand witnesses are people who are interviewed. I know one fellow who's interviewed a hundred people who were at Roswell or lived in Roswell at, during that era. There were uh, either firsthand or secondhand witnesses to the events that occurred surrounding the uh, cover-up of the Roswell incident. And indeed, many of those people's lives were ruined, disrupted, uh, threatened by the military, to, to, to keep it secret, you know, to stay shut up about the whole thing. So, you know, I believe that. I mean, I believe that it's not a safe thing to flaunt to the world. If you have firsthand knowledge of it, then probably a good idea to stay shut up if you value your life. But again, this is 60, what, how many years ago is this? 60 some years ago. Uh, you know, so perhaps things have changed in that regard as regards to feeling on the part of the government that it has to be covered up. Now, do you? Th I, I know that you mentioned that you did this before her death. How did you confirm that she passed away? 
Uh, well, the only way I, I confirmed it two ways. One is she mentioned in her last letter that uh, she and her husband had moved to Ireland, where I guess his family was from, and uh, that they were going to um, commit suicide together. Um, she was at like 83 years old or something mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, but it, after you've read, after you've read the whole, all the material, and you take, you can take her statements in context. Uh, then it begins to be very clear, and it's easy to see that her intention was to depart the body on purpose to go back to the domain where she came from. Because she she rediscovered and she reconnected, and the amnesia was removed. And by the way, yeah, we're we're going to be using the term ISBE. Is that is that how I S dash B E? What does the acronym stand for? Um, the transcripts give a definition. Errol, the officer who was interviewed, gives a definition. Uh, let me see if I can actually read you the exact definition because it is there is an, ex, an exact definition here. I suspect the B stands for biological entity, but I'm I'm confused to the uh, I S. Yeah, no, it doesn't stand for that. Let me, no. let, me look up, let me look it up here real quick. Sure. Here and I can. And while you look for that, let me just read to the audience for a second, if I might. Matilda was allegedly 23 years old after this all happened, and she was actually honorably discharged. And she she said this. The last order that she received, it said, quote, I received a document that it was instructed to read and sign. It was an oath of secrecy. The language of the document was full of legalese, but the point was very clearly made that I was not, I was to never, ever discuss anything whatsoever with anyone whatsoever about anything whatsoever that I had seen, that I have seen, heard, or experienced during my service in the military under pain of death as an act of treason against the United States of America. Now, the question is, if she had this, how did she contact you to, quote-unquote, spill the beans? Well, I contacted her first. I had this, I got this phone number from my editor. I called her up. She answered the phone. Uh, and then I gave her, because she was interested in the book, she gave me her mailing address. I sent her a copy of the book. Uh, when you so, say your book, you're referring to the other book. To, to my, the first book that I wrote called The Oz Factors. Right. I sent her a copy of that book in the mail to the address she gave me in Montana, which I reproduced in uh, the beginning materials of the alien interview book. I mean, that address and everything is, every single thing I know about this now, I put into the book. I took all of the original documents exactly letter for letter and typed them into a publishable format uh, included in the book. There isn't anything that is left out, altered, changed. It's letter for letter, exactly as I received it, which I felt, you know, uh, when I published it, it was really the only honest thing I could do. And given uh, the nature of the materials and the nature of who she is and what I feel is her integrity as a, as a person, I felt that the only thing I could do to have any honor or integrity in this issue would be just make it available to the world. And that's all she was interested in. Um, so I did that. And in the end, after the interview, the period of the interview, she was introduced, and these names we know 
in the UFO uh, community. Army Air Force Secretary Symington, General wow. Nathan Twining, General Jimmy Doolittle, General Vandenberg, and General Norstadt. These are some of the most important who's who in, in this field. Yeah, these are all these were all real people. I mean, you know, I started looking it up. I started looking up all these names and places and dates and everything. And down to not just me, but a lot of other people too. Um, you know, verified that in fact every single person, place, event, da 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 da, da as described is ex- is verifiable. It's true. Now, like you, I like to go in in sequential order. First of all, you, me, you me, can I interrupt you real quick? Yes, you know, I got this definition. Please, yes. The word is be. Uh, the definition from the exactly as written in the transcripts is. Uh, this is Errol, the pilot of the uh, UFO craft speaking. Quote, personally, it is my conviction that all sentient beings are immortal spiritual beings. This includes human beings. For the sake of accuracy and simplicity, I will use a made-up word. Quote, ISBE, I-S-B-E. Because the primary nature of an immortal being is that they live in a timeless state of is. And the only reason for their existence is that they decide to be. Therefore, is be immortal spiritual beings. Okay, and you were not a UFO researcher or investigator before you came in contact with Matilda. Uh, no, not at all. I mean, as I mentioned, my editor was very much interested in all of that. And as I said, she used to listen to the Art Bell radio show and all that sort of thing. But that wasn't the reason. It wasn't like you know, I was kind of peripherally interested in UFOs and so forth, but. It's not my main field of study. So why do you think you were chosen by, by her well, uh, I think to receive are, the package? That's, I think that's an excellent question. I've asked myself that question a thousand times. But I think the simplicity of it is that um, uh, after she read my book, uh, she sort of got the sense that uh, I was asking questions in my book and you know, sort of poking around in the same kind of material that's addressed in the transcripts. She knew the answers to, essentially. Um, and that also, obviously, she felt that she could she could trust me to uh, deal with the materials uh, you know, ethically and sensibly, at least get them reproduced and published, which is essentially really all I did. Um, Anyway, I, I think it just it was a matter of her her personal trust. I mean, I don't I don't know, probably accessibility to some degree. It's like, well, who did she have available to her that might have done, you know, might have published the material? You know, I had no idea. But for whatever reason, I'm I, I feel blessed to have received it, but it's a it's a blessing and a curse simultaneously because having Having, you know, decided to accept the responsibility for publishing it, then I have to also, you know, live with that responsibility from from here on out, um, which is okay. I mean, I think the material is is very very well worth um, making known to as many people as possible. And since the original publication, I have been you know, doing what I can to try to make it more broadly available. I have a website for the book and I have a little blog that I publish about the book that just has excerpts from the book and other information that's given to me from other people that 
sort of exemplifies or, or demonstrates the information the content of the materials. Uh, it's also, I've helped a few people make translations of the book. Um, there's a really excellent translation in the German language, which that's just been completed. It's a very, very good translation in Spanish. Uh, it's currently being translated into Chinese, Korean, Japanese, French, uh, Hebrew. And, but this is all being done by volunteers and people who are just read, them, read it and have asked, you know, gee, can we translate this into our language? And I go, sure. Well, I have, I have to tell you, I, I, I read the book once for this interview, but it's one of those books that you have to read more than once to, to absorb it all. And sec segment two, we have some questions from members of the audience. One of them says that he has read the book over 30 times, and every time he reads it, he gets something new. But once again, Errol, it's, uh, that's how you pronounce her, Errol, A-I-R-L. Why, why, pardon me? As far as you know, that's the way to pronounce it. Right, right. Um, she refers to the, the entity or the being as a she, although he was mostly asexual. Why did she refer to Errol as a she? Well, um, she says right in the transcripts um, that Errol describes herself as a, although as an officer and a pilot and an engineer with this uh, extraterrestrial invasion force from a different, apparently from a different universe, um, that she is a, a feminine entity from the point of view of a, kind of her, her spiritual essence. She's a, she, she's a nurturer. She's a creator. She's how she describes herself. So even though there's no, there's no sex type attached to the physical body or to the, you know, spiritual beings don't ordinarily identify themselves sexually. She felt that female energy. It's just so, yeah, exactly. She she feels feminine relative as opposed to masculine. She's not doesn't typify the, the typical characteristics of masculinity, which is you know force and uh, brutality and blah blah blah, whatever that might be. But anyway, it's just I guess it's just her. From what I get from the transcripts, it's her own way of uh, describing uh, how she feels about sure. And I, I would hate to just continue calling it an it, so I'd rather call it as she. Well, so you were you were chosen first to as her. She, the, yes, the nurse always refers to it as her. Exactly. And okay, so you were chosen as the editor, or or to to receive the the data. Why was Matilda chosen as the communicator? Well, when you read the whole book, you discover the story behind uh, Matilda's role um uh, a relationship to the pilot uh, and to the invasion force from whom the pilot is uh, a part mm -hmm. pilot is an officer engineer uh, the voluntary personnel member of what she refers to as the domain and the domain is essentially a military type operation that's invading from wherever they came from, which they don't ever identify, but one assumes is another different universe. It's not a different galaxy. It's a whole different plane of existence. They're invading into the physical universe and conquering and gaining possession of the physical universe. 
And while passing through uh, our particular galaxy, um, uh, about 10,000 years ago, they established a base in the Himalaya mountains. Uh, and the base was attacked and destroyed by another force that wasn't known to them. It wasn't known that they had operations in this solar system. So the surprise attack, this base in the Himalaya mountains was destroyed and 3,000 of the personnel from this domain military force were uh, killed and captured as spiritual entities. And um, subsequent um, investigations and other uh, members of the domain were sent subsequently to, to try to find the people that their, their personnel disappeared. Didn't know what happened to them. Uh, so over some, I guess, two, three thousand years, they finally figured out that there was this other operation uh, that had existed in this solar system for a very, very long time that was controlled by what was then the central government of the Milky Way galaxy and a much, much larger expanse of uh, the physical universe, which the nurse and Errol referred to as the old empire which isn't its real name apparently, but uh, the long and short is that the domain has uh, since that time destroyed these, what was, was the central government of the old empire and uh, taken control of this area of space themselves. Um, and then you get into the, you know, as you follow along that, that line of what occurred, then you discover that those uh, personnel of the domain that were killed and captured by the old empire were um, as spiritual entities given amnesia and uh, made to inhabit uh, bodies of you know, flesh, you know, human bodies on planet Earth. And there were about 3,000, right? About 3,000 of that original. Subsequently, apparently, there were other groups of the domain that were sent to Earth, and they also disappeared. And so it wasn't until quite a while later that they finally figured out that there was this old empire base here in the solar system that was running uh, a prison planet system, a prison system using Earth as a prison. Let me stop you for a second because I think this is important to dissect. The old empire, we, they can, she continued calling it the old, or Errol continued to call it the old empire, but they are still here in a way, and they are the ones who continue to keep planet Earth as a prison planet, almost we think of Australia, a prison colony. We are a prison planet. And they also, um, I wonder if if the the, the beings from Errol, they're almost like conquistadors uh, by Christopher Columbus. And they, although she sounds benevolent, as I continued reading, I found that they are also, they like to go and get resources from all over the universe. Apparently, yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell. I've been studying this for four years now. I don't know for sure whether the uh, what the intentions of the domain uh, invasion force are as a whole. I mean, how could you how could you know? They're not going to mm -hmm. share that information, certainly. Sure. Uh, but my personal, just totally aside from everything else, just my personal opinion is moving more and more the, in the direction of. The, uh, my feeling is that the domain uh, is fundamentally benevolent. 
Um, that's, but that's just my personal opinion. What their actual agenda is and what their orders are, uh, nobody, nobody knows. Well, certainly not me. Well, but at one point, the, the Earl even said, we have intentions of taking over, and we haven't done so yet, but it will be in the future, perhaps 5,000 years down the road. And something else I wanted to ask you regarding Errol. She talks about how she came here before, even during the the Vedic times. Uh, you know, she experienced the Vimanas and so on. This is, you know, 8,600 years, but she even mentions things that happened millions of years ago. Now, when these people came here and became entrapped into a physical body, does this mean that Errol's people are light beings? Well, they're, what she says is there is beings, like everyone else. They're just you know, spiritual beings like everybody else is a spiritual being, no different. Uh, except to the degree that uh, people, the officers and personnel and so forth from the domain to uh, a greater or lesser degree, have the ability to um, uh, uh, enter into a physical body, like the type of body that Errol inhabits as a pilot of a spacecraft. She's, she describes it as a more like a doll. It's not a biological entity. Is it like a suit? Like it. Well, she describes it as being, uh, the, the nurse gives a description of the body as, as being a, uh, uh, you know, what most people, I guess, would commonly think of as a uh, robot or computer. Well, it's like uh, more like a, a doll. It's, it's a short, like she says, a, it's three meters tall. Let me actually, I could read, I could look up and read her exact description. Sure. Here from the transcript, there's no point in trying to paraphrase. You can actually read it straight out of the transcripts. Um, but she does give a very pretty detailed um, uh, description of the body, which I thought was very interesting. Um, okay, so here she says, um, I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs that describe this because this, this is, I think, very interesting. Um, sure. Earl told me her reasons for coming to Earth and for being in the area of the 509th Bomber Squadron. She was sent by her superior officers to investigate the explosions of nuclear weapons, which were tested in New Mexico. In uh, the footnote, in, in, you know, this, she's referring to Alamogordo, New Mexico, where the uh, nuclear testing, Trinity, where the development of the nuclear bomb occurred uh, that was used to bomb. Uh, and in fact, the 509th Bomb Group was the... The, where the planes took off and dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Mm -hmm. That was the exact place. Anyway, to continue, uh, her superiors ordered her to gather information from the atmosphere that could be used to determine the extent of radiation and potential harm this might cause to the environment. During her mission, the spacecraft was struck by, uh, by lightning, which caused her to lose control and crash. The spacecraft is operated by ISBs, who use, quote, doll bodies, in much the same way that an actor wears a mask or costume. This is like a me mechanical tool through which to operate in the physical universe. She, as well as all of the other ISBs of the officer class and their superiors, inhabit these doll bodies when they are on duty in space. When they are not on duty, they leave the doll body and operate, think, communicate, travel, and exist without the use of the body. 
The bodies are constructed of synthetic materials, including a very sensitive electronic, do that again, very sensitive electrical nervous system to which each is the adjust themselves or tune in, in a, uh, to an electronic wavelength that is matched uniquely to the wavelength or frequency emitted by each ISB. Each ISB is capable of creating a unique wave frequency which identifies them much like a radio signal frequency. This serves in part as the identification like a fingerprint. The doll body acts like a radio receiver for the ISB. A specific no, signature. Yeah, no two frequencies or doll bodies are exactly the same. The bodies of each ISB crew member are likewise tuned into and connected to the nervous system built into the spacecraft. The spacecraft is built in much the same way as the doll body. It is adjusted specifically to the frequency of each ISB crew member. Therefore, the craft can be operated by the thoughts or energy emitted by the ISB. It is really a very simple direct control system. So there is no complicated controls or navigation equipment on board the spacecraft. They operate as an extension of the ISB. And this uh, spacecraft, <clears throat> I believe, is located, or during that time, was located close to the asteroid belt. So in other words, the being, Errol, was connected and was receiving information directly from the spaceship, correct? Uh, that's what I gathered. Yeah, yeah. Now, if the alien... And I'm going to get into the specifics, and this is this is no joke. This is a real question. If the alien had no mouth and didn't need to eat, what kept it? And I say because it wasn't – Matilda says it was a female energy emanating from it, so let's stay with the she. What kept it alive, even if it was a, 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 a dull figure or, or a uniform? What kept that computer, if we can put that labor for a second, how did it produce energy to keep it – functioning uh, according to what matilda says and what i'll say uh, the the isby emits energy and that animates the the doll uh, just like you as a spiritual being animate your physical body she says that they don't require any outside source of energy they don't they don't need light they don't need food they don't need water they don't need air they don't need any of those external sources of energy they supply their own energy and they animate and control the the doll body uh which they then inter use to interact with the spacecraft itself uh it doesn't one thing they that's a good i'm glad you brought that up because one thing it doesn't really say in the transcripts is what the source of energy of the spacecraft is it doesn't give any information about that which kind of makes sense because that would be um I gather that would be a military secret, so we yeah. can discuss that, obviously. But anyway, as far as the body itself, um, the body apparently is only like a, a three and a half feet tall, very, very lightweight, very fragile. Um, so fragile that, uh, and, and Errol even discussed this, that our our gravity is too, too strong, our atmosphere is too heavy, so it was very hard for it to even walk on this yeah, on our soil, if you will. Yeah, it's it's like the body's. Um, what what the nurse says and what it says in the transcripts is that each of these bodies is uniquely designed for that particular officer, or pilot, or engineer, or mechanic, or navigator, or whatever the whatever the the role or the duties of the personnel in the domain. The body is designed specifically for that ISB. 
and to, to do specific functions. Uh, so no two bodies are alike. They're all, they're like a tool that's an extension of the, the being themselves. And I think later in the transcripts, it talks about that, you know, some of the bodies are designed specifically for with tools you know, instead of a hand or whatever, you have a tool or uh, there's a soldier type of, of body that's designed specifically uh, for use for soldiers and so on and so forth. And it has weapons embedded into it. Yeah. So it's like a, it's like, it's not a body in the context that we think of a human body. It's a body more along the line of a, it's a vehicle. It's a tool. It's a vehicle. It's a, yeah. something you use to do your job with, you know, like a hammer, a wrench, a, a machine, a, a lathe, whatever. It's more, you know, it's practical. Now, what do you think when Matilla asked uh, Errol, when she asked, do you believe in God? Errol answered, we think it is make it continue always. Now, that seems a little bit... Uh, um, uh, what did she? He, what did she mean with that? A little bit cryptic. <laughs> uh, I think it means what it says. I mean, I, I have, I, you know, I can interpret it for myself. Now, one thing we have to remember is that that statement was made. I think it was during the first or second interview mm -hmm. before the use of the English language was really settled upon and and. That was the impression that the nurse got at that time, uh, which was, as she says in the transcripts, her initial impressions when she would ask a question, she didn't get a very, have a very clear understanding of what was being communicated. But her ability to understand more precisely as the interview continued improved, uh, particularly after uh, the pilot was introduced to the English language and basically before you, before you go there because I want to tell people how that happened at one point the the alien told Matilda that that she knew 347 languages within the no domain but did not know English however she did know another language from planet earth from 5965 years BCE and that was the the uh, Sanskrit from the Vedas does this mean the alien was this old, or, or was she even discuss events that happened several? She even discuss events that happened several million years ago. So does that mean that yeah. the body that she had was just a, as you say, a, a tool, and she could actually transfer to other places? Yeah, that's what I that's what I get from it. Um, I, I, you know, I don't. I I get the sense that the body is, as you say, it's, it's a tool. The uh, the officers are able to enter into the body and leave at will, uh, and they can go. They can, they can choose to use different bodies at different times for different purposes, uh, and they can, as described later in the transcripts, they can even enter into human bodies and animate those bodies and leave, you know, depart at will. So their their ability to uh, to use bodies or animate objects or whatever for their purposes is uh, not limited by you know, what we would consider on Earth to be a godlike ability or I don't even know how to describe it. Um, it's certainly uh, beyond, outside of the context of normal human behavior, that's for sure. Now, please explain how 
of course, they don't sleep. They don't have to eat. So when the the superiors, Matilda's superiors, asked her to to see if, if she could teach them teach uh, English, explain that process. How did that happen? Yeah, I thought that was that was fascinating. I've actually talked to um, a number of other people about that since. Uh, but be, uh, in the course of the interview process, the, she discusses this problem that they encountered the, the military and intelligence officers who were composing the questions that they wanted to ask, have the nurse ask. Bear in mind that the entire interview process was done telepathically between the mm-hmm. nurse and the pilot. So nobody else was able to listen to or participate in the question and answer process. It was all done through the nurse. It was all through her subjective uh, experience of this entire thing. So essentially everybody in the military and intelligence officers and everything who were formulating questions had to take her word for it that what was being what the nurse was telling them was actually what the pilot. So that's a pretty far stretch. You know, here you got a you had a nurse who's not a ranking officer. She doesn't have any particular security plans or any she's not a translator or interpreter or anything else. So they're you know, they tried, they tried to have all kinds of other people come in and conduct the interview and other uh, people who were notorious for their telepathic ability and psychics, so on and so forth. And uh, they're even named. They, their names are given in the, in the transcripts. And they, they're actual real people that actually lived, you know, right there at that time and so on and so forth. So, And, and forgive me for jumping in every time, but I just, I just want to have something, something clear. You probably heard the name Dan Sherman. He wrote the book Above Black. Very similar in that he was also telepathically communicating with another being. In her case, how and why was she identified to be the person? She was, uh, not to undermine anybody who is a nurse, but why was she chosen to be the one? Did oh, well, they know that she had that capability? Yeah, you did the you discover by the time you get to the end of the transcripts and most especially in Matilda's final letter, uh, it's the last part of the book um, that Matilda herself was a member of the domain. One, right. of, one of the members of the domain that was uh, captured by the old empire and put in a physical body on earth and has been here ever since for thousands of years, apparently. But yeah, but how did the military identify her and chose her? They, the military did not identify her and chose her. The, the pilot did. Uh-huh. The pilot said, I'm not going to answer any questions except through you. You're it. You're the only one. When when uh, the nurse, uh, the beginning of the transcripts, the nurse describes uh, going out to the site of the crash with the uh, security officer uh, assigned to the base to investigate the crash. And when they arrived there, uh, she was able to perceive communication from uh, the one surviving uh personnel of the crash site and so she went to her superior officer the security officer guy who is a real guy um his name is given in there and everything and says you know i'm getting i'm getting communication from this this alien here so they asked apparently they asked around you know is anybody else perceiving any communication here can anybody else well nobody else can communicate so the security officer said okay well I'm assigning you to stay with the uh, this, this alien, and you, you stay with him at all times because you seem to be able to communicate. And nobody else 
gets anything. I so, see, but it was it was coincidental that she was there in the retrieving process, and that's how they they came in contact with the the yeah, alien. It was, it was coincidental, but as you as you learn, by the time you get to the end of the whole thing, you discover that the nurse herself was actually a member of the domain before. Uh, thousands of years since. And, and she was a nurse in previous lives too. Apparently. That's what yeah. she said. So uh, anyway, it, it's like the, the pilot of the craft knew that she was already a member of the domain. And one of the, one of the lost members of the domain that, that Errol and many, many other officers and personnel from the domain had been looking for to try to find for thousands of years and searching all over the place to try to find and restore the memory of the that had been of the officers and personnel that were wiped out by this old empire prison planet mechanism and return return them to active duty in the domain uh, while the nurse apparently was one of those uh personnel which is why she was able to communicate with the pilot telepathically because that's how the members of the domain communicate with each other now ex felt. explain once once again, if you could, the process in which these Isbis come here to the planet and they're essentially captured on hell on earth as a prison planet, and they can't escape because they suffer from amnesia, so they have no way of of knowing where they came from or who they are. Uh, well, um, as I understand it, part of that, I mean, you really need to read. All of this is described in detail in the transcripts, exactly how this whole thing operates and so forth. So, but I'll try to kind of quickly paraphrase. Uh, essentially, Earth is used as a, a prison planet. It has been for a very long time, uh, some at least 10,000 years, and perhaps much longer. Nobody knows for sure. Um, but the, the mechanism that keeps the prison planet, um, secure from escape and so forth is uh, built on the idea that um, throughout the, the galaxy and throughout the universe uh, that was under the control of the old empire, there are uh, certain segments of the population, as there are in any society, that the government deemed to be undesirable. Uh, they refer to them as untouchable, which interestingly is a term that we use they use in India. The caste system, yeah, yes. Caste system, yeah. Some people are referred to as being untouchable. Uh, anyway, so whoever is, is deemed to be undesirable in the population of the old empire, which includes, you know, criminals and psychopaths and uh, people that are uncontrollable socially for mental reasons or whatever. Uh, they're, they're artists, they're engineers, they're geniuses, they're um, people who maybe were uh, military opponents or political opponents or whatever. They just decide, okay, we're going to get rid of all these beings because they're troublemakers and we don't want to deal with them. So we'll set up a this prison planet off at the edge of some distant galaxy someplace uh, on an uninhabited planet and uh, surround the whole thing by uh, an electronic force field uh, that will keep... The v Van Allen belt? Um, I don't know what it is. It doesn't describe it exactly, but it does describe it as a uh, a force field that's emitted um, by uh, machinery and 
structures and so forth that they put in place intentionally as part of the prison planet system to continually and automatically emit this force screen all around the planet so that as soon as uh, you die or depart your body as a spiritual entity, you come in contact with this force screen and it recognizes your, your spiritual signature, your fingerprint or whatever, and then it swoops you up uh, by whatever means, and uh, uh, it's set up to erase your memory through the use of electronic force, uh, heavy you know, electricity, basically, that sap you with a huge amount of electricity, wipes out your memory, just like if you were to go get an electric shocker and you stick, Treatment, your, yeah. stick your finger in a light and get struck by a bolt of light and whatever, causes amnesia. So anyway, they put you through this amnesia process, and then they they give you a whole bunch of uh, uh, hypnotic suggestions and false information about who you are and where you came from and so forth, and they send you all back into uh, down to earth to inhabit another, become a baby, pick up you know, become a human being again, and start the whole process of birth, death, uh, reincarnation, blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. But every time. You depart the body, uh, they capture you, wipe out your memory, and send you back to continue that whole process. And this mechanism apparently is automatically in place. It doesn't require any maintenance. There's nobody running it uh, anymore. Apparently, there was when it was first established, and until the uh, the operation that was controlling the prison system was was wiped out by the domain, which. The transcripts are a very detailed, lengthy description of uh, the warfare that occurred in space between the old empire and the domain forces, which was eventually won by the domain forces. So there's no longer any old empire personnel, apparently, that are not, not any combatants, and not anybody in the military sense, that's running this prison planet operation. But the whole thing is set up on kind of an automatic, mechanical uh thing in this around the planet so that it just keeps running you know and uh there's uh, i want to discuss this later uh, the company for lack of a better term the company bugs and blossoms which is pretty much what created all living beings here and i just want to say something about the amnesia if they created us this is something that I discussed a few weeks ago in another show, Lawrence, that people were asking me about past lives and what we can't remember. And I did some research and found that the chemical oxytocin is associated with both amnesia and pregnancy both. So makes you wonder if the cause of a past life amnesia could be the oxytocin secretion in our mother's womb when we were there. And if that was part of the plan so that when a baby's born, that secretion wipes out, you know, in addition to the electronics that these beings may have with us that we can remember. Oh, that's interesting. I, I've never heard that before, but it certainly makes sense from the point of view that the pilot, you know, Errol says that uh, the bodies, that the human bodies that we inhabit on Earth were biologically engineered over a very, very long period of time, not just for Earth, but, you know, that they're, they're kind of universally available throughout the physical universe in various places, according to the, the nature of the planet. I mean, if the planet meets certain atmospheric pressures and climates and uh, the chemical content of the atmosphere and so on and so forth, that they try to match 
the bodies to the environment of the planet. So you have different bodies manufactured or engineered according to the what can be sustained by certain planetary environments. So on Earth, the type of body that we inhabit here, the human being body, uh, was engineered for this particular type of planetary gravity, atmosphere, so on and so forth. Uh, but every every bit of it uh, apparently was engineered on purpose and designed specifically uh, to suit the purposes of uh, or modified, probably is a better word, modified to suit the purposes of the old empire for use as a prison planet. One of the things that, not to depart from that discussion particularly, one of the things I find found most compelling about the uh, the whole empire prison system is that Errol refers to the the initial setup of the prison planet system uh, being done through the uh, putting in place of false facade civilizations. And she says that all of the pyramid civilizations of Earth, uh, which, you know, the pyramid civilizations exist all over the whole planet. Mm-hmm. Everywhere on the planet, there are all these monumental stone monuments all over the place. Uh, well, I was watching an episode of... Uh, um, Asian Aliens? Asian Aliens, yes. I was watching that. Um, and there was how, an, did, how how did I know that? Yeah, there was a, there was a it's telepathy. No, yeah, uh, no. There was a an episode on there where these guys who you know made it their life's work to go around and study all of this uh, the ancient monuments and all this sort. Of, they came to the conclusion that all of these stone monuments all over the world, not just the pyramids, but you know things like Stonehenge and all of these megalithic monuments made out of these gigantic pieces of stone all over the world, which apparently couldn't have been constructed by anything other than extraterrestrials because humans don't have the means to to, to, to do that sort of thing. But the interesting thing that they revealed on the show is that all of those stone monuments collectively are interconnected in a geometric grid that's very, very precise. And collectively, they all emit an electromagnetic field that surrounds the entire Earth. So I saw that, I went, wow, that makes sense. That's how, that's what, that's the mechanism that Errol describes as the false facade civilization that emits this force screen that goes all the way around the Earth and is used to capture these be when they depart from the body and then recycle them through this amnesia process and, you know, keep the prison planet system intact. Uh, anyway, there's a really, really interesting, that segment, that particular segment, I put it on the, the Alien Interview blog because I thought, wow, this really explains a lot of what Errol is talking about in those transcripts, how how that mechanism works and what keeps it in place and how it's connected to the false facade civilizations. Because when I read the transcripts, I never could quite figure that out. You know, what is the false facade civilization you know, have to do with it, except it's disinformation, obviously. It's designed the pyramids and all appeared just sort of magically overnight, all of a sudden out of nothing. There was no evolution. There was no sequential uh, progress from the, the Stone Age to the Bronze Age to the, you know, da-da-da. And all of a sudden you've got these 
unbelievably sophisticated architectural structures all over the planet, complete with um, civilizations, cultures, languages, high mathematics, religion, writing, symbols, agriculture, everything just sort of appeared overnight, poof, just one day it was there, next day it's, one day it's not there, next day it's there, all over the planet, all at once, um, which, you know, people just go crazy trying to figure that out, you know, how did, how did this happen, who did this? So that these guys that are doing the ancient aliens investigation, I mean, they're on the trail of that, absolutely, and they're doing a lot of really great research, I think. Did Errol um, or Matilda, did they discuss the moon at all? Because I know that they like to use low-gravity areas. Like uh, That's why the asteroid belt is so preferable because there, you, know, you have Ceres and you have Vesta that are small planetoids there, and they can operate a lot. Did they say anything about our moon? Oh, uh, gosh. Um, it seems to me that there's some tiny reference to it. I have to, I have to look it up on my copy of the book here real quick. I have a searchable copy of the book. Oh, me too. I get, get to love that PDF, yes. Great. Um, so it's uh, moon. Oh, it says the moon of Earth and the asteroid belt have become a permanent base of operations for the domain forces. Could they be on the far side of the moon? Uh, well, all I know about it is what it says, what you just read. <laughs> Civilization controls a vast number of galaxies, stars, planets, moons, and asteroids throughout the area of space that is approximately one-fourth of the entire physical universe. The continuing mission of her organization, meaning the domain, is to, quote, secure, control, and expand the territory and resources of the domain. Uh, that's what they're here. That's what they're doing. So, yeah, apparently, I mean, obviously, they own all of this area of space. They can do whatever the hell they want. And everyone in the domain is aware of this, except the people of Earth. Doesn't that make us, doesn't that render us as lab rats? Pretty much. Well, at least prison, prisoners in a prison. I mean, to me, I was talking to a friend of mine today, in fact, uh, about that. And if you, if you just try to think of Earth as a prison planet and just compare it to any other prison system, I mean, it seems very, that's a very easy analogy to my way of thinking. If you just look at, you know, how do prisons operate? What's the purpose of a prison? How is it controlled? How is it maintained? Who's doing it? You know, who decides who goes into the prison? Uh, how do they control the prisoners? Uh, who keeps them there? What degree of force do they use to make sure that nobody escapes? So on and so forth. And the type of people that are in a prison are all the people that the civilization determined to be undesirable or untouchable. They're, you know, they're psychopaths, they're murderers, they're thieves, they're political adversaries of the current government. They're, um, you know, people who don't agree with the system, they're revolutionaries, blah, 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 whatever. Whoever you decide uh, you don't want to have around the government. Anybody who doesn't want to tap into the hive mind, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So the hive mind, you know, analogy is... That applies to any any culture or any civilization at any time in any any place. I think it's just like whatever happens to be politically expedient or expedient to the the, the priesthood or to the economic forces, the bankers, whatever, who make the decisions as to who is a heretic, who's a criminal, who's undesirable. You know that that collective culture that that rules the planet decides who's 
who's a who's a criminal and who isn't. And they're the guys who put them in prison and keep them in prison. And the very, very last thing they want you to do is number one, escape from prison. But moreover, they don't even want you to know that you're in a prison. That's right. So the amnesia mechanism is genius. I mean, it's brilliant from that point of view. It's like what better way to keep prisoners in a prison than to make them think that they're not in a prison. Well, just I keep thinking of Australia. I don't know why. It's almost as if uh, we never told the people in Australia, and we have plenty of people from Australia listening to us right now, if we didn't tell the people in Australia that their country at one point was a prison colony. And, uh, you know, it was far away in the middle of the Pacific or Oceania uh, uh, for them not to be able to escape from there. It was exactly what it is. But years after, that country has flourished. Now, they say that they want to make contact in the future. I still am unclear as to why do you think they haven't made themselves known? And we keep talking about this old empire as it didn't if it didn't exist, but it does exist. And the managers or administrators, they're the ones who are keeping this planet a prison planet. The old empire... Uh as I understand it, set up the prison. And it wasn't the over the old empire. Errol says it wasn't the old empire government per se as a whole. It was uh, actually a small clandestine secret society uh, that set up the prison planet illegally. Unbeknownst to anybody, they went off and set up this prison planet on Earth and continued to operate it uh, secretly for their own uh, financial, political, religious, whatever, whatever agenda they had. Uh, and they're the ones that set up the whole, whole thing originally. And she refers to them as, uh, uh, the Brotherhood of the Serpent, which is sort of, uh, interesting. You know, it's more than sort of interesting. I think it's really more than coincidental because every, every one of the pyramid civilizations around the world without a single exception exception have uh snakes or serpents as part Absolutely. of a significant primary part of their symbology. The Egyptians, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the, all over the world, every time every place you find one of these um uh pyramid civilizations, there's always the the, the snake is the symbol. You know, the serpent is the symbol. The Aztec pyramid has um when the certain time of the year, when the sun falls in a certain trajectory, it, it creates an undulating serpent coming down the side of this, the pyramid to the ground. And then it turns around and goes back up again to the top of the pyramid and disappears at the solstice or something. Anyway, it's, it's like there's, there's the snake thing happening <laughs> everywhere. Well, you know, I, I've been speaking with other researchers that there are three commonalities when you look at, at cultures from thousands of years ago, three things, the feather serpent, slavery, and gold. Those three things, you can find them anywhere, and the pyramids in Mesoamerica, Egypt, and so on. But we have so much more to discuss with Lawrence Spencer here, the book Alien Interview. Let me ask you, Lawrence, because I have so much more material to discuss with you. If we have to extend a little bit beyond the two hours, are you okay with that? Uh, if you let me have a bathroom break, I'm... Oh, no, no, absolutely. We'll take a break right now. I'm just saying for the listeners now that we may have to extend a little bit beyond the two segments, but let's take a break now. How do people get in touch with your work? Not only the Alien Interview, you also have other other publications. Uh, well, 
probably the easiest way is, um, I mean, the books I've written are available through all the conventional online booksellers, Amazon.com, iTunes. Uh, some of, many of the books are in audio, audio book course uh, versions rather. Uh, you can buy those on through Audible.com or iTunes. Uh, the printed books you can get through um, the publisher, which is Lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, or you can get it through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, so on and so forth. Uh, pretty, pretty readily accessible. And I have to tell you, folks, this is such a fascinating book. Whether it is true or not, I don't know. Lawrence doesn't know. But as many of the stories that we've discussed before, you know, unless we can see the alien in front of us or unless we can see a piece of the UFO, you have the decision of not listening to the story or listening to the story. I choose to discuss it and I choose to use my own discernment. So I hope that you're enjoying this. And when we come back, we have lots of questions from members of the audience and more material that I'd like to discuss from the alien interview book. Very fascinating. This is Mel Bamberger. You're listening to Veritas, and I'm here with Lawrence R. Spencer discussing the book Alien Interview. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
this is John Lear, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. <laughs> 